Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Vasiliadis. I'm Mr. Copeland. Today we're going to be talking about Reconstruction, the period starting in 1863 while the war, war is still going on, concluding in 1877. Here we go. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have driven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savages. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Okay, so after the Civil War ends, there's basically two major questions that kind of unearth uh, during the uh, after the conflict. The first one is, what should the Union do with four million displaced African Americans? Is this going to be a federal responsibility or a state res responsibility for facilitating their adjustment to freedom? Yeah, and the other important factor is, how do we move on as a nation? How are we going to bring the defeated Confederate states back into the Union? Is it going to be a situation where we treat them like occupied, conquered nations? Or are we going to be a little bit more lenient, thinking of them as Lincoln did, as just states in rebellion? So I, I, the decision between those things are important. So we have competing reconstruction plans that emerge in the uh, conclusion of the war, after the summer of 63, after the Gettysburg Address, is when Lincoln believes in this idea of he wants to entice the South to come back. He wants to make it easy for them to end the war. He's trying to end the war as quickly as possible. So with his policies and the proclamation of amnesty and reconstruction that he puts forth in December of 1863, is he wants political reconstruction to happen and incentivize it by making it a little bit easier than it could be on the other hand. Keep in mind that this is about a year before the election of 1864. He needs to appeal to a wide variety of people up in the north, not just abolitionists, but free soilers and the people that just kind of want to bring the union back. So we it's very we don't know for sure if Lincoln was trying to be politically strategic in being overly lenient or Lincoln truly believed that this was the best interest of the country of being as lenient as possible. Keep in mind the war is not over yet, so he can't afford to be more strict or stringent. A year later, Congress will respond to Lincoln's proclamation. Keep in mind that's not a bill. It's just basically an outline of what he intends to do after the war. Congress will pass, or some people in Congress will muster up a way to push the Wade Davis bill into the hands of uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. The bill, will, of course, will require 50% of the Southern state voters to take a loyalty oath and permit only non-Confederates to vote for a new state constitution. So a little bit more harsher, and of course, Lincoln will refuse to sign the bill, and he will pocket veto it after Congress has adjourned. Yeah, I think he's concerned about sending the signal that it's going to be hard for you to come back into right. this country, especially at that time as the war is still dragging on. Um, you have to understand that this has some political implications. Anyone who is non-Confederate at the time, most of them are going to be... Um, Republicans and the Republican Party. So Lincoln has to kind of dangle on that tightrope of not being too harsh, lest he kind of uh, continued the war um, as it's still raging. So as the war finishes in 1865, and then shortly after uh, Lincoln is assassinated, Congress is reasserting their power in how they view the important issues should be handled. So with that first question about what to do with the freed African Americans, now referred to as freedmen, 
uh, they create what's known as the Freedmen's Bureau. And this new agency is really important because they're the ones put in charge to help facilitate. They're the people on the ground making sure that they're being taken care of, providing food, shelter, medical aid, all these type of things that are necessary. Um, but they also had a very important role initially, which was to help resettle blacks and confiscate property that previously was owned right. by the southern plantation owners who had fled when the Union troops were taking and re uh, conquering their lands. Famously, uh, General Sherman had said, that each black freeman would be given 40 acres and a mule for them and their family. We're going to redistribute this land to give them a fair shot at success in our new society because the people whose land we're taking this from, they were rebels and traitors. It doesn't end up coming to fruition. Unfortunately, President Johnson will later kind of roll back this policy and pardon Confederate owners and their property. And, of course, the state courts will also reinforce this and restore most of the land to the original orders. What happens to the free blacks that were promised or given this land? They are kicked off the land and, or forced to work on the land as sharecrop farmers. Um, but the Freedmen's Bureau is not only um, interested in the distribution of property, but also their crowning achievement is establishing an educational system. A man named General Oliver Howard is going to create nearly 3,000 schools, and by 1870, the Bureau will teach an estimated 200,000 blacks how to read. So again, uh, even though it's under the auspices of the military, it is a highly effective agency that will require further funds during the Johnson administration. Yeah, so as Johnson comes into power, we have to remember that the reason why he was selected in 64 to be the running mate of Lincoln was to try and show that bipartisan nature that Lincoln was offering up right. to the South, encouraging them to come back, that you will be treated with respect as you do. Um, and when Johnson, the only loyal Democrat from the Senate to remain with the Union, um, does come into power, he has a very different way of doing things because of the way in which the entire government is run by the Republican Party. He himself is a Democrat, so they might have been allied during the war, but after, not so much. Um, so his plan was very similar to Lincoln's in terms of only requiring 10% of the population to vote uh, on uh, loyalty. But the other thing is the disenfranchisement of Confederate uh, leaders and office holders. But there's also this added element of Confederates with taxable property above or greater than $20,000, those are people that are going to have to apply individually for a, from a pardon for him, uh, from him, excuse me, for a pardon from him. And this is something that becomes an option for many wealthy Confederates, and there's rumors of corruption and backhanded deals and bribes that Johnson is going to benefit from. But this is a, a situation where you have people that were not supposed to ever be let back into our political theater again, such as Alexander Stevens, who's the former Confederate States of America vice president. He is elected from uh, Georgia as their United States senator uh, after he's accepted by a pardon through Johnson. So this is something that creates a different wave of uh, moving, accelerating the process of bringing the Southern states back into the Union. And by the end of 65, you have all 11 of the Confederate states accepting his plan for political reconstruction. They're going to drop their constitutions. They're going to, of course, repudiate or reject secession. They're going to negate, negate debts of the Confederate government. And, of course, under uh, Johnson, as similar to Lincoln's plan, they're going to accept the 13th Amendment of the abolition of slavery. None of these new constitutions, however, will extend to voting rights or political rights for blacks, however. Um, Johnson, 
by virtue of kind of passing this plan, will, of course, alienate himself from Republicans um, and, and his vetoes. Uh, for instance, in 1866, he's going to veto the bill to increase funding and support for the Freedmen's Bureau that's doing such a great job in facilitating this adjustment to freedom for black people. He's also going to further veto the Civil Rights Bill uh, that, of course, will be designed to nullify the black co codes and guarantee citizenship and political rights to African Americans. And again, it's going to give the impression that Johnson... Um, is pretty much on the side with the Southern Democrats. He's a great betrayer to the cause, and a lot of Republicans are going to try to kind of develop a campaign strategy that we'll later talk about called Waving the Bloody Shirt, which is an emotional appeal about the Civil War. Like, why are we fighting in the war? Why is over 600,000 men going to die? And for what if we're not going to restore the South in the view of Thomas Jefferson's great uh, clause in the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. So this really, the, 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 this type of reconstruction plan is what's really going to alienate Johnson from the people in Congress. Yeah, and one of the unique situations we have is we have the first example of a Congress being able to override a presidential veto with both of these policies. So Johnson tries to establish his view on what should happen in reconstruction, but the radical Republicans are able to um, put those uh, things in place because of that. So um, with the two-thirds majority that they enjoyed, they were able to kind of dictate the way things were going to happen going forward. So you have in 1866, many Republicans are moderate right. like Lincoln, but because of the growing power of the Democratic Party, we mentioned that the three-fifths compromise evaporating allowed the population source uh, to cause representation to increase for the southern um, states once they are readmitted. So the concern is not just the representation in the House, but also Electoral College. They're going to have a little bit more weight behind each state's policies. So maybe we need to be radical to maintain our power in Congress. So some of the leading radical Republicans that it's important to uh, refer to are Charles Sumner, who was famous for his caning, or he was nearly beaten to death. Um, Thaddeus Stevens from Pennsylvania. He was somebody who was really a staunch defender of the rights of blacks, promoting education. And he was really emphasis, uh, it was a strong emphasis on trying to confiscate the lands from the Confederates to try and offer it up for them. More, a little bit more of a person out on the frontier at this moment is Benjamin Wade in the Midwest from Ohio. And he is a radical because of his beliefs in women's suffrage, the rights for labor unions, and also civil rights. And keep in mind, as Mr. Copeland mentioned before, even though all, not all Republicans are radical, and, and some there's a big healthy majority of them that are moderate, it, it's the leadership of these three gentlemen that are able to kind of channel the votes into uh, radical Republican policy. So um, it, it's very important to understand that congressional leadership um, it does have an effect on the rest of the votes that happen. And we'll talk more about that as we enter the 20th century. So with these men, they're able to kind of pass the Civil Rights Act, as we mentioned before. Um, they're going to override Johnson's veto and will pass the bill. It'll pronounce all blacks to be U.S. citizens. It'll attempt to provide a legal shield against the operation of black codes. These are against state laws that basically exploit and marginalize uh, black communities. Um, however, there is a fear that the bill could be easily overturned if Democrats win a majority in the midterm elections. So again, the Republicans are going to try, like Lincoln pushing for the 13th Amendment, try to permanently keep the Civil Rights Act cemented into the constitutional framework. And this comes with the 14th Amendment. Yeah. Because it was passed in, 80, uh, in 1866 and finally ratified by all the states in 68. 
that concern was realized because they needed to address the issue of all persons born or naturalized in the United States should be citizens. We saw how the language of the Constitution was used in a way in which to defend the idea of um, black people in uh, the entire United States not having any rights with the Dred Scott decision based on that idea of citizenship. So by obligating all states to respect and honor the rights of all U.S. citizens with equal protection under the law, as well as due process of the law, it is really important because the 14th Amendment, as we've talked about in class, has lasting effects still to this day in the implications of all groups fighting for rights or protesting the government or any injustice that they may perceive. Um, we, we also call the 14th Amendment the, um, the Civil Rights Amendment because, uh, as Mr. Copeland's mentioning, this will be used uh, as a citation in many of the Supreme Court cases. Um, other parts of the amendment, however, are going to be more applicable to the context and time period there. It will disqualify former Confederate political leaders from holding political office. It will repudiate the debts of the defeated government of the CSA. And it will penalize a state if kept any eligible person from voting by reducing the state's proportional representation in Congress as well as the electoral That's a Congress. significant penalty. Right. The sad thing is they never really have the teeth to be able to really enforce that. Right. Because that would be a deterrent, in my eyes, for states that they would not want to lose their representation. Less of a law and more basically a declaration of their agenda and their interests. In 1866, there'll be a report a report known uh, and written by a joint committee. This will be a committee of House and Senate members that will issue recommending that the, re the rec reorganized former states of the Confederacy are not going to be or should not be entitled to representation in Congress. Only newly elected Southern Senators, uh, senators and House members are uh, they're not legitimate. Congress and not the president have the authority to determine criteria for state reentry into the union. Um, of course, this report officially rejected the president's plan for reconstruction. So again, not necessarily a law, but outlining the agenda. And it's basically historians use this as a way of showing Congress's reassertion of authority over the president. Now, I need to make this clear. Most of the times we've studied in American history where the executive branch dominates power over the legislative branch. Here, we're having an instance where the complete opposite happens. You have the legislative branch reasserting power and kind of dominating the executive branch during this time. Well, I think a major part of that is the uh, assassination of Lincoln playing right. into that, the conflict between the parties, right. and the fact that probably the own uh, the president's own cabinet isn't fully aligned with him right. allowed it maybe easier for something like that to happen. Um, so as we look at the election of 1866, midterm elections have consequences to see who is going to be uh, the side that the public supports, whether it be Congress or the president. So Johnson is appealing to the idea of white supremacy. He's promoting fear of impending congressional plan of reconstruction and what it would mean for the future of the country. Um, Republicans, they counter with the idea that all Democrats are traitors and how dare you give them representation in our government so quickly. You should instill the Republican Party in power. Therefore, you can trust us to get it done the way it should be after the Civil War. As you said, the bloody shirt the uh, philosophy of we'll do things the way it should be so that those lives weren't lost in vain. Now, the Republican Party is so successful in this election that they gain more than two-thirds majority in both the House and the Senate, which is very important for what they're able to do later on. And one of the first laws that they pass when they, and they are done with the midterm elections is pass the Reconstruction Acts of 1867. This effectively places the South under military occupation. It will divide the CSA into five districts, each under the control of the Union or federal government, right, right now in our Army. Southern states governments had to ratify the 14th Amendment and guarantee voting rights for blacks in their constitutions in order to gain admission. Um, of course, this is going to have significant uh, effects on the political landscape of this uh, of the Confederacy or the old Confederacy, in which black people now have the ability to not only vote, but also kind of hold some local or even state offices. 
So with two-thirds majority in Congress now, Johnson has very limited influence on the way Reconstruction is going to operate going forward. So with a different view of how things should be done, the only move he has to do is to try and meddle and tinker with the military itself. As commander-in-chief, he has authority to do that. Um, so what do the Republicans do to counteract that? They pass the Commander of Army Act, which basically states that the president, in order to influence or change anything going on in those five districts occupied by the military in the South, he must go through the commander of the military, who is Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War. Uh, and then in an effort to preemptively protect Edwin Stanton in case he was to be removed, they put in place what is called the Tenure of Office Act, that the president is not able to remove any official or cabinet member without the Senate's consent if the position was originally required Senate approval. So they're trying to protect these um, their efforts to have control and limit the protection of Johnson, uh, excuse me, the influence of Johnson on Reconstruction. So Johnson's frustrated. He feels like he is a president who's been completely undercut, all of his constitutional powers being um, you know, dominated by Congress. So what Johnson does is he thinks this is unconstitutional for those reasons. He decides to fire Edwin Stanton and remove him anyway. Doesn't need congressional approval. So what does the House do? They ready articles of impeachment. So the House responds with a vote overwhelmingly to impeach Johnson. So that starts the trial. Uh, and it ends up being, even though they could have removed him, only one vote was needed. One vote more was needed to remove him. Uh, the moderate Republicans ended up joining the Democrats to prevent the removal because they felt like this would just be too much controversy, too tragic for the moment coming out of the Civil War that we were just trying to recover from. Um, so when Johnson kind of gets the stain of impeachment, even though he doesn't get removed from office, uh, when the next election happens in 1868, the Democrats are going to choose Horatio Seymour to run against Ulysses S. Grant. Grant, however, will only manage to win the popular vote by 300,000, of which 500,000 blacks will allow the Republicans to win. This be, this convinces moderate Republicans to kind of realize the, the political advantage for black suffrage. Um, in, order to, in order to kind of solidify black suffrage, again, uh, the Congress will move to make this an amendment into the Constitution because, as we know, laws can be repealed very quickly, especially if the Democrats take over the majority. So the Republicans took advantage of their, their power to cement it in their constitutional framework. And moderate Republicans, they're thinking, oh, maybe I don't want this to be permanent at this moment once right. they see how it's going to help them maintain power. You know what? I like that. Idea. Yeah, Let's right. make it permanent. You know, it's so Republicans, self-serving. So by 1869, the amendment had that prohibited any state from denying vote citizens to any voting rights to any citizens. By 1870, the amendment, of course, will be ratified in three-fourths of the state. Um, they're also going to pass the Civil Rights Act during their tenure in Congress. It will be the last civil rights reform enacted by Congress. It will guarantee equal accommodation in public places and prohibit courts from excluding African American from juries, which is very important considering civil and criminal court cases are going to be decided by an all-white jury, um, which at the expense of African Americans. Um, unfortunately, however, this act will not be strongly enforced. As we will talk later, the Republicans and their constituents will grow very wary of um, of these reforms, and a radical reconstruction will eventually kind of dissipate and die out by 1877. Yeah, they're fearful of using the support within the white voters. And one of the things when it comes to the juries that I mentioned in class was um, most juries, in order to execute someone, require unanimous consent. And with that, when you have no African-Americans on juries, it's more likely something like that is going to go through um, with maybe little evidence. And that's one of the things why it was so critical to 
um, the equal justice and the rights of the South. Um, and we see that play out in the next 50, 60 years. So radical construction, reconstruction in the South basically is the last 10 years of it. Um, Republicans are controlling state governments. They're, protect, they're controlling through the military. And Congress is fairly satisfied that uh, when a state meets the requirements, they'll let them back in. Um, but it only lasts until 1877 when finally the troops are withdrawn. Now, what is the composition of these Reconstruction governments in the South? In every Republican-controlled state government, whites were the majority in both houses. There will be an exception, of course, in South Carolina. Blacks will hold the majority in the lower house in 1873. Legislators included native-born Southerners, freedmen, and, of course, recently arrived Northerners. Because of this political composition that's made up, it's natural that a lot of the Confederate soldiers or the Southerners, Democratic Southerners, are going to develop nicknames for some of the people that they view are traitors to their own cause. So the nickname for Southern Republicans, these are former cotton Whigs, are going to be called scallywags, and they're going to be seen as traitors. For the Northern Republicans coming in and intervening, either for political or economic reasons, they're going to be called carpetbaggers for some of the salesmen to kind of carry a, a bag with a carpeted uh, felt around them. Um, these are people that have a lot of capital. These are bankers. These are people that want to start railroad uh, investments at the exploitation of the war-torn South. And of course, carpetbaggers are going to get a bad rap, and they're going to be seen as exploitive, where some of them are going to actually be there for humanitarian reasons and assistance. African-American legislatures, most, if they're going to be elected, are going to be moderate. Again, we discussed this in my class that uh, black politicians have to kind of balance, do a balancing act to kind of cater and be appealing to white audiences, even the ones who are liberal and progressive. They don't want to kind of come across as too radical, where if you want to compare Frederick, Doug uh, Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison. William Lloyd Garrison's way more, and back in the 1830s, more willing to be radical because he doesn't have to worry about this. So most of these African-American legislatures in the South are going to be kind of moderate, despite that the South is going to write the history that they're very radical and really punish, uh, very punitive towards their masters, their not going to be as much and with an education might i add the one thing about them that was radical was their physical appearance right and it's their, true their uh the fact that they were their presence in the congress was, radical. was the radical right. thing so their presence itself was their radical gesture so uh, that's why they were needed to be i mean if you think about it blanche k bruce and haram rebels are going to be the first two black u.s senators and in such a wonderfully radical and symbolic gesture rebels will fill the senatorial seat of jefferson davis from missouri um, more than a dozen are going to be sent to the house of representatives and even though these leaders were still in the minority and held little political power their presence as we said served as a symbolic sting to white supremacists. Now, when we evaluate the Republican record in the South and whether or not Reconstruction was successful, it's important to remember the perspective of who is saying and who is making this right. argument, right? So if you're a Southerner, you're going to say the reason why Reconstruction was a failure was because of their intentions in the first place. They were Northerners coming down to the South, trying to change the culture, put people who were not qualified in power and incapable of being governed in, in, into power. They want to expand their voting base by allowing these black people to vote. And surprisingly, curiously, they're all becoming Republicans. And yeah. This is a political strategy how and convenient. how convenient. Yeah. And and if you believe in that, that you believe that they are abusing their power. These are tyrannical procedures, especially the 14th Amendment, which effectively undercuts mm -hmm. the state rights and the, their ability to pass laws that are 
presumably going to be democratically elected. Yeah, it wasn't hard in class for us to you know, calculate which right. party the uh, freedmen were going to align with. Right. But for them, it's like, oh, how convenient that all these people are trying to make sure they vote. They're all voting for you overwhelmingly. So the other thing is the perspective of the northerner. Right. Um, we both mentioned in class that the north just didn't have the patience. Right. They got frustrated. And the political will of the northern citizens was applying too much pressure on the northern politicians that they weren't doing enough for the north, that we elected you to represent the north, not go down to the south. So the way it dies out is really because of the lack of the will to stay there long enough. I suggested 30, you said 50 years, that maybe it was necessary right. to leave the lasting change to do this. So the north, we'll view it as a... Uh, failure because of the lack of success in establishing the, the legitimate change that the Civil War warranted. So let's start with some of their accomplishments that you cannot deny. The Republican legislators will make the Southern state constitutions more liberal and progressive by providing universal, true universal male suffrage, mm -hmm. the property rights for women, they are going to assist in debt relief, and they're going to establish modern penal codes. Legislators will also promote infrastructure in the South, railroads, bridges, etc. They're going to establish state institutions such as hospitals, asylums, and home for the disabled. We talked about that last in the era of Jacksonian democracy. A lot of these social reform movements are mostly in the North. They're going to spill these reform movements and these institutions down the South. They're going to establish state-supported public school systems, a lot of which, if, if you recall, the educational tradition in the South was mostly based on private tutoring. Now we're beginning to have more of an organized system of education and they're also going to be paid for all these reforms by an overhauling the tax system and of course selling government bonds. Now when we look at the failures you have to objectively look at the fact that whenever you have a large government program or the federal government moving into wide sweeping change there's going to be some examples of the mismanagement of funds. There's going to be wasteful spending or in, in the perspective of the Southern was all of that spending was wasteful because of what they were trying to accomplish. But the failures when it terms to this term graft is the idea of you're using, you have so much money at your discretion, if you're somebody who works for the Freedmen's Bureau, or if you're somebody who's moving down south as a carpetbagger, I want to affect a lot of change. I have $100,000 to use. Sometimes some of that money gets used for personal profit, and sometimes for personal gain or personal uh, acquisition of land. So uh, there's human nature to sometimes use things the way they shouldn't be done, and that always has to happen, uh, happens to occur in situations like this. Uh, but historians have a tendency to overlook this type of corruption that plagued the northern and state municipal governments because of the fact that it was in the effort of rapidly trying to modernize the economy of the South that was left behind in the agriculture. In, in other words, the Republicans are not being corrupt in the South. At the time, there was a, just an, an, an environment of corruption, and you can't really kind of hold the policies of Reconstruction against that. It was right? the way business was done back right. then. We shouldn't hold it against right. them. Yeah. African Americans, of course, are going to contribute to their adjustment to the freedom, and the biggest uh, reason for kind of um, facilitating in the education and, 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 the, and the, the search for jobs is, of course, the building and the development of black communities. Emancipation is an opportunity to become independent from white control. Obviously, um, during this time, there's going to be a lot of reuniting with families, learning how to read and write, and there's going to be a lot of migration to these cities. Of course, not in the north, not until the Great Migration of 1919, 1920. You're going to see that. And, of course, African Americans are going to help make this adjustment uh, of freedom by forming African American churches, more uh, black 
black ministers are going to obviously become quick leaders of their community because they're not only going to have access points to a greater uh, uh, amount of black people, but also they're going to have access to being more literate in terms of sola scriptura and accessing the Bible. Some in the community um, are going to have very few resources, and they're going to still, despite that, create black schools that will be operated by black faculty. So we're not having white teachers teach black students. We're having black teachers teach black kids. The, uh, universities like Howard, Atlanta, and Fisk, and Morehouse are going to be colleges to prepare African Americans to be black ministers and teachers, much like we've seen with Harvard and Yale in the 16 and 1700s. By 1880, 34% uh, of black school-age children will be enrolled in schools. One of the things that's really important to understand about the, the role of the black minister in the communities of um, the in these black communities is the fact that because as we move forward in time, uh, the black uh, adults are pushed out of political society. Right. The only leaders in their community will have to be through the church, and that is how they become um, social movements. A hundred years later are usually originated in the church. And that's why so many of the civil rights movement is uh, originates there as well. So um, one of the things that's important to recognize is the effort to try and reestablish a cheap labor source in the South and reestablish the uh, pre-emancipation uh, labor source was consistently attempted by the Southerners. Once you see the end of Reconstruction, uh, you see the uh, system of sharecropping starting to emerge, and then it's fully entrenched in the 1770s and 80s. Uh, and basically, it's a landlord, usually white, usually someone who prior to this time period was probably a plantation owner. They provide seed. They provide farm supplies. They allow the black family to live as a tenant, and in exchange on their land, they get usually half of the harvest. However, in the document, what we read is all these stipulations and technicalities of ways in which you can go from 50% to now you only get 20%. And then we're going to have to take even more. And then in addition to that, you have interest. And um, you have loans out on the work, um, excuse me, the equipment that needed for the work and things like that. And all of this is to indebt them and entrench them, not in legal slavery, but in financial slavery. And since they are tied to the land financially and indebted, that they're never going to be able to leave. So although it did provide them an opportunity to work, and we put work in uh, quotes there, is that they're given the land there, but they are dependent on the landowner for all their success. And this debt that they're creating makes sharecropping become a form of servitude. Now we're going to shift gears and kind of start focusing on why did Reconstruction fail. And one of the biggest major reasons is really generally speaking is that the north is going to start being focused on other material or business interests so we have to focus on what's going on in the north during reconstruction case in point there will be elements of greed and corruption people like lincoln and radical republicans their form of idealism will be pushed aside uh, by other moderate republicans uh, that will focus more on business and material interests there will be a rise of spoilsmen these are people that are very interested in kind of utilizing their position in federal uh, governments or state governments to kind of gain uh, wealth gifted gifted politicians such as sumner and stevens and wade these are the radical republicans are going to slowly be replaced with uh, politicians like Roscoe Conklin from New York or James Blaine from Maine. Both will heavily rely on patronage and the spoil system to maintain their power. Um, this will obviously be resonant and reflected in corruption in business as well because business and government, we will talk later, 
in the Gilded Age, there will be a cooperation between these two entities. Uh, one such scandal is the Gold Fisk scandal. So it's an interesting situation in 1869 where you have a member of the government um, connecting with these two Wall Street financiers. Uh, this man, Jay Gold, James Fisk, he solicits help from Grant's brother-in-law, the president's brother-in-law here, who might know something about the, the information in terms of interest rates and the way in which gold is going to be valued. So by getting advanced uh, information, it's almost like insider trading is the way I would refer to it, is that by cornering the gold market, you're able to take a stance or a financial stake in something before anybody else knows. Therefore, you're representing the most value to you being added when the uh, information is announced to the general public. So uh, they end up being found out because the Treasury Department breaks off the scheme before Gould can make a huge profit, but it leaks out and becomes a scandal that affects Grant's administration. And one of the, uh, there's several presidents throughout our history that are known for their scandals that take place during their uh, time, and uh, Ulysses S. Grant is one of them. The credit mobilier affair has to do with congressmen who are personally benefiting from the railroad uh, industry. They are uh, making incredible amount of profits from government subsidies. So what they're doing is they're incentivizing. So a subsidy is when the federal government or state government tries to help a business accomplish one of their goals by providing them with funds. So they're very lucrative and very uh, something most businesses want the help. Well, who wouldn't want the money? So what these congressmen are doing is they're starting to offer them up in return for favors. And they are making so much money off these railroad companies uh, because they're giving them the subsidies. In turn, they're getting kickbacks. This is a situation where they're investigated and they are profiting off of their position and their position of power becomes a significant scandal. And uh, the final scandal is the whiskey ring scandal, which has to do the way in which federal agents are uh, conspiring with the liquor industry to try and defraud the government for millions of taxes. You show up for tax day, rather than paying those taxes, you pocket those taxes, and then you say that they were paid. This is the way in which these type of scandals all refer to individuals profiting off of their position of power, and it's something that our government has always had a small presence of, but the American people are never supportive of it. And these scandals are going to have a detrimental effect on Grant's political career as well as the Republicans, but it's important to note that a lot of these scandals are going to involve uh, areas outside of the South. So again, as we mentioned before, this is not so much of an indictment of the Reconstruction policies. This is just what's also happening simultaneously. And the Democrats are also being scandalous as well. I mean, William uh, Boss Tweed is part of the Democratic machine in New York. He's going to manage to steal over $200 million from taxpayers' dollars before the New York Times and cartoonist Thomas Nass will expose him. This exposure, of course, will bring about his arrest and imprisonment in 1871. So there's a lot of like... Uh, corruption that's happening, and because of that, it's distracting people from fully reconstructing the South. And and by the election of 1872, uh, a lot of reform-minded Republicans will break away from their party and nominate a man named Horace Greeley. He's, of course, going to advocate for true civil service reform because of these scandals. He's going to try to push for an end of railroad subsidies and a withdrawal of the troops in the South, reducing tariffs and free trade. Interestingly enough, Democrats are also going to join these Republicans and nominate Greeley um, because they also see an interest in having the South becoming fully independent of federal oversight. Other Republicans will counter by waving the bloody shirt, again, a campaign strategy that we mentioned before, and nominate Grant. And despite the scandal surrounding him, Grant will be reelected in a landscape. However, the election of 1872 will foreshadow the exhaustion or the, the electorate's exhaustion with continuing to fund and promote the policies of Reconstruction in the South. Now, we have the Panic of 1873, 
most panics that we've had thus far all are revolving around the same concept. It's speculation and specifically over speculation by financiers. So if you're loaning out money to businesses or to individuals who are going to try and attempt and start a business, uh, specifically in the railroad industry here and in other industries, there's going to be some failures. Um, and you always have to calculate that risk. But what happens is when everyone believes and everyone kind of falls into the trap that things are going so well that nothing is going to go wrong, people start to take more and more risk. With these risks, um, Increasing in this era, you see more and more failures and it causes instability in the market. Um, Grant ends up being, who's backed by creditors, ends up vetoing a bill that is calling for the release of additional greenbacks to somehow alleviate the stress by these debtors. But um, this is something that occurs every 20 years or so in these issues of speculation. So this general environment kind of creates a level of exhaustion and distraction for the northern electorate and this is what's eventually going to lead to the end of the reconstruction but if you want more immediate reasons why the reconstruction ended we are going to give you some right now the one is the formation of the terrorist white supremacy group known as the ku klux klan in 1867 in response to what they see as radical and tyrannical uh, policies like the 13th 14th 15th amendment and their ability not to gain power in the state and local legislatures this group founded by Nathaniel Bedford Forrest will use intimidation tactics to kind of either scare black people from voting and participating in democratic society. And it's just going to be a constant struggle to constantly put these groups out. But of course, they're hiding in secret. They're they're, they're part of, of a very powerful network. These are not your uneducated hillbilly people. These are doctors, lawyers, uh, sheriffs, uh, judges, people that are in high positions of authority. So it becomes very difficult, especially if it's secret, to kind of stamp them out. And of course, they have the narrative of being the heroic white knights defending against the tyrannical dragon of the federal government. And of course, the staining reputation of black people uh, sullying Anglo-Saxon superiority and, and institutions. So it's very exhausting to kind of fight against this terrorist group that is very popular popular in the South. Yeah, and I think what you touched on at the end there, the popularity is crucial because even if they weren't participating right. in it, the acceptance of their it. goal and the passive acceptance and support of right. what they were doing is what made it uh, possible. If news of this came out and the majority of the population was like, oh, that is terrible. We have to stop this. It becomes would, the federal yeah. government is now seen as the occupier. They're the bad guys. The, these northern Republicans are outsiders. They're interlopers. Yeah. And, our, and our good boys, most of which we're related to, are, are, are taking on the they're white knight. They're community leaders, community leaders, like you mentioned. They're community leaders. They're not people that are off on the fringes of society. Right. These are the most important people in every community. Those are the people underneath those sheets. And uh, at night, you might not know who they are, but at day, you would know exactly who they were. Um, and so what this causes is that growing frustration. So the Amnesty Act of 1872 is a bill that basically removes the restrictions that have prevented any Confederates from being part of this government in the South. Um, they allow Southern conservatives to vote for Democrats and retake state governments um, based simply based on this population. Um, as we mentioned, fatigue, frustration, but also distraction with the things that we were talking about uh, just previously, all the corruption, accusations in the North, money to be made in the North. Right. How long are you willing to stay down here to do this? How long are you staying willing to stay down here to, to finish the job? But if you really want to, you really want one event that really kind of nails the coffin to the Reconstruction, it starts from a, a controversy surrounding the election of 1876. At this point, slowly, uh, very much due to the Amnesty Act of 1872 and more lobbying from the Southern 
Democrats through the federal government, um, only South Carolina, Florida, Louisiana are going to be the only ex-Confederate states that have federal troops stationed in their region. Okay, Federal troops had been slowly withdrawing, allowing Southern conservatives to reassert power and, of course, intimidating black people to go to the polls. Republicans, of course, during this election will nominate Rutherford B. Hayes. He is untouched by the scandalous Grant administration, and they're hoping that an Ohio man can uh, take the next presidential seat. Democrats, of course, will elect a man, a reformer named Samuel Tilden of New York. He will be seen as a reformer fighting against corruption like Boss Tweed. So it's a pretty close match, and Tilden will be projected to win, but there will be some controversy on the total tally of votes from, interestingly enough, South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana. Tilden only needed one electoral vote from these states, any of these states. A special electoral commission will be created to arbitrate over the dispute and investigate this, and a straight party vote of 8-7 to seven from the commission gave the votes to Hayes, which enraged the Democrats. To them, they see this as hijacking the election. This is election fraud to its highest degree, and they're going to threaten to filibuster the results and send the election straight to the House, like we've seen in the election of 1800, like we've seen in the ele- election of 1824. Um, they're, they're going to throw it in, which they controlled at the time, which becomes a very dire situation for the Republicans. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the electoral map, you see Louisiana, Florida, South Carolina, the only parts of the South where the Republicans were able to gain any electoral votes, how convenient that those are the three states that they still control. And that's why you can see how they feeds into the Democratic argument of uh, elections being controlled or influenced by them. So the Democrats are here posed with, uh, with a choice. We can fight. We can take this to the House. We can win the election if we choose, or we can use this as a bargaining chip. Or we can think, hmm, maybe we can get what we really want out of this. The presidency is just four years, and the executive, we know, doesn't have as much power as everybody thinks. So they decide to work out a deal. The Democrats say, all right, we could filibuster this and bring it to the House, but um, we'll give you your votes for Hayes. We'll allow that to happen. You can become the next president as long as you remove and withdraw the remaining federal troops in the states that are in the South. And now all of a sudden you have a situation where the democratic control of the southern state governments is reestablished, and they finally push back the tyrannical and oppressive Republican radical and military controlled of Reconstruction. Um, They also were hoping for a southern transcontinental railroad out of it. They didn't end up getting that. But um, these three things, the Compromise of 1877, the democratic control of the southern state governments, and these court rulings that uh, that are taking place, all equal the end of Reconstruction. And we will discuss a similar rollback on some of these progressive policies when we talk about the 1960s as well. Okay, we'll see you next time. Take care.